So we're going we're gonna to look at it um, going right the way back to where it first uh, appears in Bible prophecy. And um, the subject, basically, as we've said, spans around 2,600 years. And so it begins back in the book of Daniel. So if you'd like to come to, to Daniel, um, and it's chapter 2, we have here a picture of the nations of the world. And this is one of the places where Iran is originally uh, talked about. Um, it's not named by name in chapter 2, but it is called uh, by name in uh, the book of Daniel. We've got the Medes and the Persians that come up later on in this story. So in Daniel chapter 2, Daniel sees the vision of the image. So this is kind of the, the global picture that we have of world history as described by Bible prophecy. And in Daniel chapter 2 and verse 28, Daniel tells King Nebuchadnezzar, that there is a God in heaven that reveals secrets and makes known to the king Nebuchadnezzar what shall be in the latter day. And he tells him, uh, the dream and the visions of thy head upon thy bed are these. So Nebuchadnezzar had put a riddle to him, more or less, which was basically to say, um, you have to tell me both the dream and then the interpretation, and by this I will know that what you're telling me is actually the truth. And so Daniel gives him an understanding of what is going on around. So if we we have a look at Daniel chapter 2, we have that image picture that's given to us in verse 31. He tells him that he's seen this this great and and terrible image um, whose brightness is excellent and it stands before you and the form thereof is terrible. And so this is a great nightmare that Nebuchadnezzar sees. And then we find on in verse 32 um, that he describes the image. It's got a head of gold, a chest and arm of silver, belly and thighs of brass, and then uh, uh, legs of iron and feet, part of iron and part of clay. And so the story goes on. And this is really the picture that Daniel is given. And our focus really is going to come in on the Medo-Persian Empire. If you turn the page in Daniel chapter 2, we find that Daniel is told in verse 38, well, kind of it, it divides the page in my Bible, where he talks about the head of gold, and he's told, you are this head of gold. So Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonian Empire represented the head of gold. But then he's told in verse 39 that after thee will arise another kingdom inferior to thee. And so this is the picture of the kingdom that arises afterwards, which we know as we look at Bible history and and world history, following the Babylonians came the Medes and the Persians. And so we also have um, this same idea of this, this delineation of nations given to us in Daniel chapter 7 as well. So Daniel chapter 7, we have a picture that's given to us there as well. Uh, The story continues on. We read, Daniel spake, and he says, I saw in my vision by night, and behold, the four winds of the heaven strove upon the great sea, and four great beasts came up from the sea, different one from another. These great beasts, which are four, are four kings which will arise out of the earth. So there are four kings or kingdoms that would come out of the earth. And, of course, we have them representative. They follow through the same story that we have in the book of Daniel in chapter 2. So we have the first being the, 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 the lion with the wings, which is the Babylonian Empire. And this is followed by the bear, um, which is raised up on one side and has three ribs in its mouth. And we're told in verse 5 about this bear. This is the the same Medo-Persian Empire phase. 
And we're told in verse 5, Behold, another beast, a second, like to a bear, shall be raised up itself on one side, and it has three ribs in the mouth of it, between the teeth of it. And they said thus unto it, Arise, devour much flesh. And so that is the Medo-Persian Empire that would follow the Babylonian Empire. And, of course, we have the story of the Medes and the Persians. It would be Cyrus the Great who would be the conqueror of Babylon. He would take his army and he would come into Babylon. And like all major world changes when it comes to empires, it usually begins with a tax revolt. And that's exactly what this was. Cyrus and his uncle Darius decided they'd had enough. They were a province of the Medes and the Persians, or the Medes and the Persians were a province of Babylon, um, or two provinces, Media and Persia, and they were down in the south, and they would end up comprising one great big empire as they arose and devoured much flesh, and they took over the Babylonian empire. And the Medes and the Persians are de delineated for us in history. We have a lot of information about them. Um, they're an interesting people, one of the first multicultural races, I guess you could say, combining both the Medes and the Persians. And you can see them here in Persopolis. There are some with the round heads, and there are some with the square heads. And so one are the Medes, and the other are the Persians. And so this is the, the interesting part of this. The Persians are the square heads, and uh, they come from the royal family of a, a person called Cambyses. And the Medes, they are the rounded or cone-shaped heads on these uh, different statues. And um, they follow basically um, the family, the royal family of Darius. Now what's interesting in this is there is a writer in the, um, in the, the ancient histories, or a writer of ancient histories, a guy named Charles Rollin. He wrote around 1738 when he finished his book, uh, or a series of books, called Rollin's Ancient History. And uh, anybody who wants to do a little bit of study on, on the, the empires of the Bible, I would highly recommend this book to you. Um, my first copy was given me by uh, brother Ken Loveridge years ago in Prince George. And uh, if you can find one in an antique bookshop somewhere, get a hold of it. And it's fantastic because it gives you all the history of the Medes, the Persians, the Greeks, all the different empires that figure into world history. And the nice thing about what Rollin does is he starts off his whole treatise by saying, look, when it comes to world history, there's going to be different opinions. You've got Herodotus who says one thing, another guy named Strabo, and then there's this, um, well, there's all kinds of different people. And he says what we have to do when we look at the Bible is, and, and history is if the Bible says something, we take that as fact, and the histories that are written by men that are not inspired, we fit into the record of the Bible. We don't try and pour the Bible into the mold of history. It doesn't work that way. The Bible is inspired, history is not. And so when you come to reading the history of Herodotus, you'll read about flying serpents and all kinds of stuff um, that kind of come into the story from Arabia, flying in from, from the deserts. And, and some of it you have to question, is that factual? Or is it kind of fanciful? Is this kind of mythology? Um, we don't have that with the Bible. The Bible is solid history. So Rollins turns around and says, this is how we understand the, the coming together of the Medes and the Persians. It's really Cyrus's family tree. Um, there was a guy named Astaces who was king of the Medes. He had a son and a daughter. The son was Darius, and the daughter was a woman named Mandane. 
and she married Cambyses, who was king of the Persians. So we had a royal marriage between two empires, or two kingdoms. The Medes and the Persians were joined together in the marriage of Cambyses and, and Mandane, and they had a son named Cyrus. And Cyrus went and lived with Darius for a period of time, um, well, actually with Astaces, his, his grandfather, for a period of time. And when he was a young man, um, in his uh, 20s, 30s, kind of early 30s, he went out to conquer the world. And um, he did it with his uncle Darius. They set out jointly together to overthrow the taxation system of the Babylonians. And um, they, of course, went and they took over Babylon. And it's a phenomenal story, one we're not going to get into tonight. Uh, but we read about it in Daniel chapter 5 and verse 30, where that night Belshazzar, the king of the Chaldeans, was slain. And Darius the Median took the kingdom, being about threescore and two years old. Now, there's two other players that aren't mentioned in this verse, one of which is um, Belshazzar's father, a man named Nabonidus, who was Nebuchadnezzar's son-in-law. Um, he's not in Babylon at the time. He's off fighting other battles. And so Cyrus, the younger of the two, Darius being around 62, um, Cyrus takes off to pursue after Nabonidus, who is um, Belshazzar's father. And he leaves the kingdom, or commits the kingdom, to Darius the Mede. And Darius rules over it for a short period of time. It's during his time we read about Daniel in the lion's den. So Daniel's around 87 when that all takes place. And then after he dies, Cyrus takes over the whole empire. Um, and of course it's Cyrus who gives the decree um, to send the Jews back to the land of Israel. And so the Medo-Persian Empire is a pretty extensive empire. What's amazing about this empire is it was in Persopolis. But if you go to the Persian area today, um, which we don't necessarily recommend that you do, but I mean, if you did, um, then you would be able to see sites like this. It's the tomb of Daniel in Susa or Shushan, the palace. And it's there today. And uh, you have the tombs of other people like Darius the Great that we just read about. Um, his tomb is also there in the area of Persia today. Um, Cyrus's tomb is there, and we have the Cyrus Cylinder. So Cyrus is probably the greatest of all the Persians, the most famous of all of them, and he was the one that founded, really, the Persian Kingdom, which is called something a little bit different in, uh, in profane history. So um, it's interesting that Cyrus writes... Um, in the cylinder about sending people back. And we have here the translation, not the translation, but the biblical account. It was the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, that the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled. The Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, and he made a proclamation throughout all his kingdom and put it in writing saying, thus saith Cyrus, king of Persia, God has basically charged me to build him a house and send the Jews back to the land. And that cylinder was found and the translation made and we see that they match uh, very closely side by side. So what the Bible had to say, that he made this proclamation and put it in writing, we then have that cylinder where that proclamation was put in writing and it's been preserved for us and is visible today if you visit the, uh, the British Museum. So Cyrus 
would, um, under him, we have the first few books of the minor prophets, or some of the books of the minor prophets. We have, it's during his time period that Zechariah would prophesy. Zerubbabel and Joshua the high priest would be in this time period, uh, followed shortly by Ezra and then by Nehemiah during the first years of the kings of the Persians. And so this is the palace at Persopolis, uh, what's left of it today. Um, a massive structure. You can see all those little column places where columns would have stood up. They would have hold or held huge roofs um, because structures back then were basically limited in size by how big you could make the roof. So by putting columns up, they could put uh, joists that would go together and then you could place the roof on top of that. And so that's what it looks like, you know, from an aerial shot. But if you look at the person that's standing there um, on the, uh, the right-hand side in that little courtyard, you realize that this is actually a massive structure. And this is kind of what it would have looked like. This is a recreation of it from the columns that have been left. Huge columns reaching up with a massive roof that's been placed over top. And um, it's, it's pretty amazing. Uh, you can see some of the bottoms of the columns there. Um, this is uh, an interesting area. It's called the Gate of the Kings. And this is what it looks like if you put somebody beside it. So it's a colossal structure um, that was built at the time of Cyrus. So when we talk about the Persians, we're not talking about a bunch of cavemen, um, you know, who are kind of primitive and that kind of stuff. It was a very advanced civilization with really some quite incredible structures um, that were built. This is called the Gate of All Nations. And um, it's a pretty massive gate because when you look at how big a person would be standing beside it, it's huge. It's a massive place, and this is where they would have ruled from. So when we read the Bible, we read about the time of Ezra and the time of Nehemiah. Nehemiah uh, was in, this, in Shushan, the palace. So this is where he was, and um, this is a relief taken from Shushan, the palace, and here you can see people that are soldiers. These reliefs are actually life-size. These guys are actually about five feet tall. When Shafin and I went to um, uh, Chicago, if you're ever in Chicago and are bored and have nothing to do, um, go down to the University of Chicago. It's a place called the Oriental Institute. And that's where they have a lot of the stuff that came from Persopolis and for, from Shushan the palace. So if you ever have to go there for work or school or whatever, um, by all means, it's almost like going to the British Museum. It's just condensed into a hall that's maybe twice the size of, of our ecclesial hall. Um, but you don't have to go through all the Chinese and all the other rubbish stuff. It's all just the stuff from Persopolis and um, all that kind of thing. You don't have to go through floors and floors of you know, different things that may or may not interest you. It's all concentrated in one place. They have bricks from the time of Nebuchadnezzar with his name on them. It's a pretty neat place to go to. So this was the Persian Empire, and it's during this time, of course, that, that Nehemiah gets the commission to go back to Jerusalem. Um, and it's also during this time um, that Esther and Ahasuerus are going to have their interaction, the whole story of Esther takes place. And notice, when it talks about this, it's Ahasuerus, which reigned from India all the way over to Ethiopia, over 107 and 20 provinces. So this is a colossal empire, going from India, right the way across the Middle East, down through Israel, through Egypt down to Ethiopia. It's a massive, massive, massive place. 
And um, we find there that it's called the power of Persia and Media. That's the, the, the place that we're dealing with and the rulers over this area. So it's a pretty incredible place. Again, if you were to go to um, Iran today, you could go and visit the tomb of Esther and Mordecai, which has been there for hundreds, thousands of years. Um, it's been turned into a sort of a, a mosque almost by the, the Arabs of the Islamic period of time. Um, but that is there today also to view. So a lot of the characters we read of in the Bible are all associated with this amazing country of Iran, as it's, as it's called today, but back in the day it was called Persia. So we want to look at Persia then. That's kind of the biblical view of this, but we're going to kind of follow it through from how does it end up being the Medes and the Persians of Cyrus's day to coming all the way through until it gets to our day and age. So Cyrus founded what people in history call the Achaemenid Empire. So it lasted from about 550 AD, or BC, sorry, to around 330. And that was the period it covered there, reaching right from India on the one side all the way down to the top of Ethiopia. And it also figures in Bible prophecy. Because in Daniel chapter 11, if you just turn to Daniel 11, we have this whole account of the, the nations, basically, um, that would be involved in the Middle East or in the land of Israel um, as they fight over this land over a period of time. But it begins back with the time of Persia. He says in Daniel 11, verse 2, and this is where it's named, Now I will show you the truth. Behold, there shall stand up yet three kings in Persia. And he's referring to Ahasuerus and to Smyrdas and Darius II. Now, the, the last of these is a guy named Xerxes. So if we read on in verse 2, the fourth, which is Xerxes, shall be far richer than they all, and by his strength, through his riches, he shall stir up the realm of Grecia. And so what Xerxes did, and it's believed that this is the, the Ahasuerus of Esther's day. Um, so what Xerxes did was he basically decided he was going to expand his empire. He'd gone from India all the way down to Ethiopia, but he wasn't content with that, as most empire builders are not. It's like playing Risk. They just want more and more and more. And so he wanted to push over into the area of Greece. So he launched an attack against the Greeks, and they did not like this very much. But this is what Xerxes has to say in one of his inscriptions. It's captured by Herodotus. He says, my intent is to throw a bridge over the Hellespont and to march an army through Europe against Greece. Uh, because he wanted to um, revenge what the, the, the Greeks had done um, to his, his father and so on and so forth. Um, so he says, I undertake the war and pledge myself not to rest until I have burnt Athens, which he dared unprovoked to injure me and my father. So he actually did go and burn Athens down. Um, and you can imagine how well the Greeks responded to this. Not so good. Um, it took him a little while to get their act together, but eventually, along came a man named Alexander the Great, and he was a Greek. And so what he did in verse 3, it says, A mighty king shall stand up and shall rule with great dominion and do according to his will. So Alexander the Great turned around and said, Well, we're going to go invade um, this whole area um, of Persia because they came and they burned Greece 
and they burned Athens down to the ground. And that's actually how he rallied a lot of the, the Greek um, little city-states around him. Um, not that he really cared for Athens a whole lot. Um, he was from Macedonia, but he used that as kind of a political tool and was able to rally the troops, and off they went to attack the Persians. So he established the Greek Empire, but what happened was, in verse 4, it says he shall stand up, uh, when he shall stand up, his kingdom shall be broken, and it's going to be divided toward the four winds of heaven, and not to his posterity, so not basically one of his children, uh, nor according to his dominion, which he ruled, so it's going to be broken up, um, for his kingdom shall be plucked up, even for others beside those. And four kings would come up in his place. And this is also picked up in Daniel 11, where we have the goat with the big notable horn, and it breaks, and there's four horns that come up in its place. So there's Cassander, Lysimachus, Ptolemy, and Seleucus. And it is Seleucus who will now take over the area of what we call today Iran, or what was then called Persia. So Alexander the Great defeated the last Darius, last king of the Persians, and his successor, Seleucus Nicator, or Nicator um, took over this whole area. And he established there the Greek Empire over what was Persia. So we go from being Persia to, to Cyrus's kind of empire, and to now we have a Greek Seleucid Empire that rules over this area. And then, after a while, it's taken over by another group, which are called the Parthians. So out of one of the territories of the Seleucids come the Parthians, and they established the Parthian Empire around 247, um, and it lasts all the way till well into the Roman Empire. And in fact, it's picked up in the book of Acts in chapter 2. We read about the Persians under a different name because it talks about um, everybody hearing in their own tongue on the day of Pentecost, and it mentions Parthians and Medes and Elamites and dwellers in Mesopotamia. And so the, the Parthians are the Persians. Uh, they are the Parthian Empire. And then there's the Medes, who are the next-door neighbors. And then there's the Elamites. And so these people basically inhabited that area, and it was the, uh, the Parthian Empire until around 224 AD. Now, it was then replaced again by another group of people that came along, the uh, Sassanids, and uh, they established their empire um, against the Roman Empire. So they overtook the Parthians and they pushed their borders right out to the Roman Empire. And in fact, this is the only empire that would ever defeat one of the Caesars the way that they did. And uh, it's, it's recorded in a rock relief where we find out that uh, one of their, um, their rulers, a guy named Shapur I, um, he has a victory over the Emperor Valerian and, um, and Philip the Arabian. And Valerian was taken as an emperor, and he was basically executed um, by this, uh, this uh, Sassanid emperor. And so they rule right up past the Romans now. The Roman Empire comes and goes, and along comes Islam. And around 632 AD, they convert to Islam. So Persia was not always Islamic because there wasn't always an Islamic religion. But right from the beginning, they converted over to Islam. And you can see this map here, how the, uh, it began in Saudi Arabia with Muhammad, the prophet, 
And he pushed basically into different areas. And one of the first places he pushes into is the area of Iran and then into Afghanistan. And so this is their, their time period where they're converted over to Islam and they're under the control of the different uh, Islamic caliphates. Now, um, later on, we have the Safarid dynasty. And um, this is uh, taken over by a guy named uh, Jacobi uh, Safari. And he begins the Safarid dynasty. So that's a period of 861 to 1000 um, AD. So again, another uh, almost 200 plus years. Um, and these guys are what they call Sunni Muslims. So you might have heard on the news about the Shiites and the Sunnis. Well, Iran used to be a Sunni Muslim site. And so that's what this was back at this point in time. So that lasted so long. Um, but then we have kind of in part of this area, the Safarids were, were kind of like, I would say, kind of dissolving or getting smaller and smaller. And another group came along called Samanids, and uh, they established themselves up to around the year 1000 as well. Now, it figures into Bible prophecy again, does Iran, when you come over to the time period of um, the trumpets in Revelation chapter 9. So when we look at the book of Revelation, and again, this is a whole other subject, but just to kind of put a, a plug in for this where it fits, during this whole time period leading up to this, they've been under different uh, rulers, the Muslim rulers for the last little while, which would speak to um, Revelation chapter 9, um, and where we have basically the angel that comes out of the bottomless pit, um, and the fifth trumpet, Revelation 9, in the first uh, 12 or so verses. But then we have in Revelation chapter 9 and verse 13, the sixth angel sounded and he hears a voice of the four, from the four horns of the golden altar, which is before God, saying to the sixth angel, which had loosed his trumpet, uh, sorry, sounded his trumpet, um, loose the four angels which are bound in the great river Euphrates. So in, in the first part of chapter 9, we've had Muhammad and Islam. They're the fifth trumpet as it's come out, and they've come out to, um, to basically go against anybody who doesn't have the seal of God in their foreheads. Um, and they go out basically in judgment of what we would today call uh, the area of the Catholic Roman Empire. Now, following this then, we have these four angels or four horsemen that come out in Revelation chapter uh, 9 and, and the rest of the chapter. And so we find that the number of these horsemen is 200,000, and uh, there's this myriads of myriads is kind of the idea behind it. Now, these are symbolic uh, in their number. Uh, it would be like 200 million in total, um, basically. But it gives the idea of people who are going out to do what God wanted them to do. And the mission of the riders is given to us in Revelation chapter 3, or chapter 9, sorry, verse 18. By these was the third part of men killed. Now, this is the third part of the Roman Empire, which is divided into three. Um, and it's by fire and smoke and brimstone, which issues out of their mouths. They repented not of the works of their hands, that they should not worship devils or idols of gold and silver and brass and stone of wood, which can neither see nor hear nor walk, neither repented they of their sorceries nor their fornications. So they're coming in judgment against the Catholic idolatrous nations that are worshipping images of Mary and Joseph and Jesus and whatever, which are made out of gold and silver and brass and stone and wood, which can't see and they can't hear and they can't walk. 
and yet they parade them around and pray to them and so on and so forth. So the mission is to destroy the third part. Now this would be what we call the Byzantine Roman Empire. And a group of or th four different waves come through. The first is the Seljuk Turks uh, from 1038 to 1295. They were again Islamic. They were Sunni Islamites. Um, they're led by a, a guy named Togrol Beg. And I'm always happy my parents, you know, didn't like these names because can you imagine being called Togrol? Um, but he's a, a very vicious guy that goes out and he wipes out. But notice where he's, his empire is situated. It's right over the area of what we would day, today call Iran. Well, following him comes Genghis Khan uh, and the Mongol Empire. Now, he's not really Islamic at all, um, but he comes through this whole area and he overflows. And again, he takes over, as you can see on the map, the whole area of what would be Iran, uh, or Persia as it was called back then, and, and pushes over that. Then we're followed by another group, and these are the Mughals, or the Mughals, right? So this is the Mughal Empire, uh, 1346 to 1405. It's short-lived, um, and it's led by a, game, a guy named Tamerlane, or Timurlane, and there he is, Timurlane, at the bottom. And this is a Sunni Islamic Empire. And um, you might not sort of think you know a whole lot about the, the, the Mughals, but if you have ever seen the Taj Mahal, um, that was built by one of the last of the Mughal rulers in India, uh, the Taj Mahal. So they were there for quite some period of time. Following this, we have another group that are called the Safavids. And these were um, Shia Islamites. So this is the first time the Shia version of Islam is brought onto the scene. And Shia Islam differs from Sunni Islam based on which branch of Muhammad's family you're going to follow. So some people say that the descendant of the prophet was Joe Bloggs, I can't remember his name, and he's from the Sunni family, so to speak, and that's the Sunni religion. Others believe that he comes from this Shia branch, and depending on which group you follow as to which prophet you follow, you're either a Sunni Muslim or a Shia Muslim. So this guy, uh, Shah Ismail I, um, basically founded the Safavid Empire, and what he did was he brought along this idea of Shia Islam into uh, Iran. Now, that, we're getting closer to modern times because that empire lasts for about 300 and so years up to 1736, right? So 1736, just before the French Revolution, and uh, you have here now another two empires that kind of kick in. We have this guy named Nadar Shah, and he has a mix of both Shia and Sunni Islam because he kind of has people in both camps. And he's followed then by another guy named Karim Zand, who is, again, just Shia Islamic. So both of them kind of, they kind of run somewhat simultaneously, but um, it brings you all the way up to 1779. And at that point in time, we have now um, a whole new dynasty. It's the Qayyar dynasty, and it runs all the way to 1925. So we're, we're getting close now to modern times. And so uh, this uh, Aga Muhammad Khan, again, it's Shia Islam, and this is the system that he puts in place, and it will be in Persia for quite some time. Now, what happens is, is that this is kind of a map of what it looks like. It's, it's called Persia, and uh, the last of these guys, the last ruler was Ahmed Shah. He's about 12 years old in this picture. 
Um, and uh, he has a prime minister, a guy named Reza Khan, who's his general as well. And uh, what he decides is we're not going to have a ruler who's 12 years old. We don't like that idea very much. We're bigger than he is. Um, so they put together a coup and they throw out um, this guy, uh, the, uh, the Ahmed guy. And along comes Reza Khan and he becomes Reza Shah Pahlavi. And um, he sets up his own little fiefdom in um, Persia. But what happens is he kind of ticks off the Shia clerics. They don't like him very much because he wants to modernize the world. It's 1925, like people have cars and they wear suits. They don't wear these long flowing robes. So he tries to modernize Iran. And that went over like a sack of hammers. Um, so it wasn't very much liked. Um, but he was trying to kind of fit in with the world at the time. In fact, he had a very good friend, um, a guy named Adolf Hitler, who sent him a, a signed portrait. And what this guy did was he renamed Persia into the name Iran or Iran, which actually means the land of the Aryans. Because if you know anything about Hitler, Hitler was big on the Aryan race. So the Shah decided, hey, you know, this guy's ruling Europe or he's gonna, you know, he's doing pretty well over there, kind of taking over everything. We want to be on his side. So we're going to rename Persia into Iran. And so that's where that name came from. And uh, so the land of the Aryans. Now, didn't go very far because during World War II, the British and the Soviets both basically said, okay, if the Iranians are on the side of Hitler, we're going to attack them. And they did. And um, they forced basically the Shah to abdicate. And they put in place his son, uh, Reza Pahlavi, uh, who would be the last Shah of Iran. So he would rule over Iran right up until the 1970s. So the Brits come along and they put this guy in place. And uh, he's more friendly to the West, um, but they couldn't have him being, you know, friendly to Hitler. Um, so they, they put him in place. And then what happens in 1979 is we have the Iranian Revolution. A guy named Ayatollah Khomeini comes to power in 1979. And we're going to watch a little piece of video because it's going to give you a little background to what's happened in Iran. Because since 1979 to, to now, how did we end up with the, the nation of Iran the way it is? It's about seven minutes long or whatever, but it really helps to show how quickly this nation, which had become so friendly with the West, with America, with Britain, and with other nations, got turned on its head and basically became a completely different nation state. In Iran, the brutal Western-oriented dictatorship of the Shah was under huge pressure from demonstrations that were tipping over into revolt. Although US President Jimmy Carter still saw Iran as an island of stability, hundreds of thousands of Iranians were challenging the security forces and the army on the streets of Tehran, demanding an end to the Shah's rule. On French television, Khomeini was asked who would rule Iran when the Shah was gone. No, it won't be me. We'll choose a council. And in this council, there will be a parliament elected by universal suffrage. The day the Shah left, there were people out on the streets with, pl uh, with um, placards saying, 
the Shah has gone, the Shah has left and everything. And it was just an expression of joy. We were in a group. We were always in the streets. The streets were absolutely packed. And there was a huge sense of solidarity. All this had quite a euphoric effect. This is something that Iranians have been waiting for many, many years. And today you can see the reaction. This is the reaction of people who are just overwhelmed by what has happened. What is the meaning of this? The meaning is that they're hoping that they will be a free country from now on. <laughs> After 15 years in exile, Khomeini was eager to finally accomplish a plan he had concealed from the wider world. Millions of people had gone to welcome him. They were as much his people as they, as they were my people. Part of them were religious. But you have to remember that a large number of them went and welcomed him because of what he had promised. He had promised total democracy. In the name of Allah, the Gracious, the merciful. Happy is the true believer. Woe to the enemy of Allah's people and the religion of Allah. We didn't take him seriously. I thought, he's crazy, he's out of his mind. Among ourselves we laughed and said, another random statement coming out of nowhere. But we were wrong. Ayatollah Khomeini used the Islamic clergy and their network of mosques to consolidate his grip on the country. The referendum on the establishment of the Islamic Republic was essentially a plebiscite. And there was no secret ballot. Anyone voting against would immediately be labeled as an enemy of the revolution. They were called people of the party of God, Hezbollah. They set up committees in all neighborhoods, committees of revolutionaries for Islamic revolution, Islamist committees in schools, in high schools, universities, factories, workplaces. There was a lot of resistance. And that resistance was broken. There were days when they killed a hundred people, or two hundred. We were in hiding, and in the evening we would read the names and try to find out who we knew. There were people who did not give their names and who were anonymous, who were killed for one simple comment. The major Western powers began to realize that the plans made at the Guadalupe Conference at the beginning of the year were not having the desired effect. 
The elderly cleric they had allowed to take the place of the Shah had neither re-stabilized Iran nor preserved Western interests. Ayatollah Khomeini became the West's bogeyman, and a fear of Islamic fundamentalism would soon begin to spread its message in what many would see as a clash of civilizations. And then, a fear of Islam itself, which became the new epitome of evil. The American hostages were blindfolded, handcuffed, and marched out on the U.S. Embassy's front steps by the revolutionary students. The Iranians had fought U.S. Marine guards for three hours for control of the embassy. The Marines used tear gas, but were eventually overrun at 5 o'clock this morning, New York time, as revolutionary guards and local police stood by and watched. While the Iranians burned an American flag in front of the embassy, they said the takeover had the express blessing of the Ayatollah Khomeini. In return for their American hostages' freedom, they're demanding the United States give up the deposed Shah of Iran from his hospital bed in New York to stand trial before a people's court. It is a sight to make any American here in Tehran feel insecure. Hundreds of Iranian demonstrators outside the U.S. Embassy calling for the death of President Carter. One poster shows the president tied to a stake, ready for execution beside the former Shah. To the demonstrators, the student seizure of the embassy and its occupants is the best thing to have happened here since the Islamic Revolution. Saddam Hussein had taken over the reins of Iraq on July 16, 1979. He saw himself as the secular leader of a country that was also the most important Western ally in the Middle East, alongside Saudi Arabia. He likewise called upon God as he challenged Khomeini in neighboring Iran. Saddam called for a war against what he saw as the expansionism of the Iranian revolution. Aiming to dominate the region himself, he exploited the ancient sectarian antagonism between Iranian Shiites and Iraqi Sunnis. On September 22, 1980, the Iraqi army entered Iran, where Ayatollah Khomeini was still struggling to establish his authority. For him, the Iraqi aggression offered the chance to finally and permanently consolidate his legitimacy. Forcing all Iranians to unite behind a nationalist call for a holy war against Iraq, Khomeini ultimately stabilized his Islamic revolution. So that gives you a little bit of a background as to how we've ended up where we are today. It's not just a, an accident of history. Iran had been an Islamic state that had fallen under the hegemony or the control or the influence of the United States and of Britain and was very friendly to both the United States and Britain, and at one point Israel as well. And yet, overnight, 1979, the whole thing flips on its head and it becomes one of the most antagonist, antagonistic states of the U.S. And you saw there that another individual came along who was the greatest ally of the U.S. outside of the Saudis, which was Saddam Hussein, the leader of Iraq. Well, of course, he would fight against Iran, and that would go on for so long. And then all of a sudden, after about 10 years of peace, he got kind of bored and decided that he would take another uh, piece of the Middle East. And this time, in Desert Storm in 1991, he would invade Kuwait. Now, that was something that I was, I think, probably about 20, uh, 21 years old or something along that lines when this all went down. And we had our, our, our lecture on this in Prince George 
And, um, you know, we, we'd been in Prince George for years, uh, I think 10 years by then, our family had, or maybe eight or nine. And, you know, we, we'd rarely get anybody to come out to a Bible talk. And I happened to be the doorkeeper at the time at the CNC lecture hall. And um, we, I got there at around 6.30, and there was 20 people standing inside the door. And I kind of said, oh, my goodness, we, you know, we've double booked this. Somebody else has booked the hall, uh, the room that we booked in the college. And I asked them why they were here, and they said, oh, we're here for the Bible lecture. And I was like, uh-oh, then I must have put the wrong time in the, in the ad in the newspaper because um, I had put the ad together for the newspaper. So I asked them, well, what time does the lecture start? Do you think the lecture starts? Well, it doesn't start till 7.30, and it was like 6.30. And so they said, we wanted to get a seat. And so I let them in, and then more people came and more people came. We were about 24 in a little congregation in Prince George. There was over 114 visitors because it was one of the first major events that had happened in years where the world was all of a sudden kind of put on, on guard. And so Desert Storm happened in 1991, and it kind of rewrote uh, the whole situation in the Middle East. The American forces and Canadian forces that had been pulling out of Europe because the Soviet Union had collapsed, some of them were supposed to be coming home when they were rerouted, sent down to the Gulf, and would now basically be in the area of Saudi Arabia and the Gulf states. And that would go on for a year. And they, they of course, won that war, but they didn't defeat Saddam. Um, and it wouldn't be till 2001 that Osama bin Laden would come along and he would actually attack America. Uh, following Bill Clinton's presidency, his two terms, uh, George Bush Jr. Um, ran on a platform of withdrawing from the Middle East. We don't want to be involved in the Middle East. We're going to let them sort themselves out. Um, but within eight months of coming to office, this would happen. And of course, that would bring America right back into the Middle East once again. And so you would see the war in Afghanistan in 2001. And then again in 2003, we had the, the second Iraq war where they went looking uh, for weapons of mass destruction against the axis of evil. And this time, of course, they toppled the Taliban in Afghanistan and eventually, it took them quite a while, um, but they removed Saddam Hussein from Iraq. So um, you saw a change then that was taking place. And, and during this time, we had also the Arab Spring then kick in. And uh, that would take place all around the same period. And you would lose uh, from Tunisia, uh, Egypt, and Libya, some of the leaders that had been there for many years. And they tried to get rid of another guy named Bashar al-Assad, who was the president of Syria and still is. And of course, this would cause the Syrian civil war. And uh, that was part of the Arab Spring, the population rising up against him. His government was primarily secular, but the family was what they call Alawite, um, which is a form of Shia Islam. And so what happened is the American troops in Iraq basically said, well, we've done our job. Um, we're finished. So they began pulling out. They were all pulled out in 2011 under President Obama. And um, in the same year, uh, this other group showed up that nobody had ever heard about before called ISIS. And it grew out of the vacuum created by America's withdrawal from Iraq in 2011. Um, Malachi, who was a Malachi, the, the prime minister of uh, Iraq, targeted the Sunnis. He was himself a Shia, and uh, he targeted the supporters of Al-Qaeda, as he saw the Sunnis to be. So many of Saddam's 
supporters, and Saddam had been thrown out or been murdered actually or killed or executed, um, they basically were also put on the run. Thousands of them were murdered in Iraq um, because they had supported Saddam. So the Shias came in and wanted to get rid of them all and uh, so replaced many people in Iraqi government, both in the police and the military, and the Iraqi opposition kind of united together um, with the remnants of al-Qaeda uh, that had been in Iraq, and basically um, they attacked prisons, limit li or liberating some of these, these terrorist fighters who swelled their ranks, and they formed another group, which was called ISIS. So in 2011, ISIS would arise. They would basically call what they called a, a caliphate, is what they were going to build. Build. It was going to be a Muslim empire with no borders. And this guy here, um, Abu Bakr al-Baghdadi, uh, um, he was his leader. He gave a sermon uh, in Mosul and basically called for a jihad, a holy war. And so uh, they had quite a lot of success in Iraq and, and broke down the borders into Syria. Uh, they were in the Sinai Peninsula. They were in Libya. And they were causing all kinds of trouble back in 2011 2012. So Iran, to help their poor little neighbor Iraq and their Shiite rulers, uh, sent troops there in 2012 and also to help out the Alawite uh, leader Al, uh, uh, um, Bashar in, uh, in uh, Syria. So you had Iranian troops now both going into Iraq and into Syria. So they're now going from Iran to Iraq to Syria right across that area um, which basically gave them some great power in the region. And so it was in uh, 2014 that they were able to turn the tide, and it was actually the Kurds um, who really kicked this off, and they stopped ISIS and um, basically have pursued it since then. So uh, in 2015, while this is all going on, um, you've got Obama, who is making a nuclear deal with the Iranians and uh, sending them billions of dollars and all this kind of stuff. The Israelis were absolutely terrified of what was going on, as were the Saudi Arabians and other Gulf states, saying, what on earth is America doing? Why are they making uh, friends with these people and working with them? And so there was great consternation throughout the Middle East. Not only that, but the Russians then decided also, because there was this Arab Spring thing going on in uh, Syria, uh, Bashar al-Assad invited them in to help out. So they obliged and they moved into Russia. And now the Russians are on the Israeli border helping to, to prop up this Bashar al-Assad against ISIS and against the Arab Spring. Well, roll forward three years and Donald Trump comes to power. And one of the first things he does is scrap the nuclear deal. And uh, he scraps the nuclear deal just as he promised he would, and he finished off, for the most part, um, ISIS. We watched as American bombs rained down night after night. The last bastion of the Islamic State tonight is on fire. And then, suddenly, the battle for Baghuz was over. This is where the Islamic State was defeated, where ISIS fighters made their last stand and lost. The most brutal, most aggressive, best-funded terrorist group in modern history is now in ruins. It was buried here. 
And so it would disappear. Its leadership would run into exile, or not to exile, but basically just run away and hide. Uh, they'll pop up again in a moment, but that is March 19th, 2019. Now, in the meantime, Iran started attacking um, oil tankers in the Gulf. So this is June, because America had now put sanctions back on them. Having scrapped the deal, they put sanctions back onto Iran. And so they suffered from those sanctions, so they seized some tankers, British and Japanese, launched missiles at other tankers and at the uh, Saudi Arabian oil fields. So the Saudi Arabians and some of the other Gulf states are really worried about what Iran is doing, um, and, uh, and America also very concerned about what was going on. Then we had Baghdadi, October 27th, 2019. He was killed, and in retaliation, basically, um, there would be an attack that was made on an American con or American area that they were working in, an American contractor was killed, uh, four soldiers were wounded, and so America responded, so this is December of, of last year, on the 30th of December they bombed the Hezbollah he headquarters and basically obliterated this, this one he Hezbollah headquarters which, of course, was funded by and supported by the Iranians. So Iran was not very happy with what America was doing. So for the first time um, since basically, uh, well, one of the, the main events that had taken place here was basically that America's embassy would be attacked. Now, you saw the video back from 1979 the Americans were very worried about what would happen this time because a bunch of students overran the American embassy in Iran in 1979 and took a whole bunch of people captive. Well, in December, in Iraq, the American embassy was attacked. They couldn't quite overrun it. But America was obviously extremely distressed at what was taking place. And so they launched the airstrike that became very f famous at the beginning of this year. Last night at my direction, the United States military successfully executed a flawless precision strike that killed the number one terrorist anywhere in the world, Qasem Soleimani. Soleimani was plotting imminent and sinister attacks on American diplomats and military personnel, but we caught him in the act and terminated him. Under my leadership, America's policy is unambiguous to terrorists who harm or intend to harm any American. We will find you. We will eliminate you. We will always protect our diplomats, service members, all Americans, and our allies. For years, the Islamic Revolutionary Guard Corps and its ruthless Quds Force under Soleimani's leadership has targeted, injured, and murdered hundreds of American civilians and servicemen. The recent attacks on U.S. targets in Iraq, including rocket strikes that killed an American and injured four American servicemen very badly, as well as a violent assault on our embassy in Baghdad, were carried out at the direction of Soleimani. Soleimani made the death of innocent people his sick passion, contributing to terrorist plots as far away as New Delhi and London, 
Today we remember and honor the victims of Soleimani's many atrocities and we take comfort in knowing that his reign of terror is over. We took action last night to stop a war. We did not take action to start a war. We do not seek regime change. However, the Iranian regime's aggression in the region, including the use of proxy fighters to destabilize its neighbors, must end, and it must end now. The United States has the best military by far anywhere in the world. We have the best intelligence in the world. If Americans anywhere are threatened, we have all of those targets already fully identified, and I am ready and prepared to take whatever action is necessary. And that in particular refers to Iran. So after Obama's red line in the sand, which of course really meant a whole lot of nothing, the world was actually quite taken aback by what Trump did um, at the beginning of this year. And what we want to just do as we kind of think about the repercussions of this is just consider for a moment some of the, the scriptural passages because we've seen this whole change taking place throughout the Middle East. What does that mean to us? Well, if you come to Ezekiel chapter 38, in Ezekiel chapter 38, we read in, in uh, verses 4 and 5, the northern confederacy that comes down in the latter days. He says, I will bring thee forth all thine army, horses, horsemen, all of them with all sorts of armor, a great company, and included in them is Persia, Ethiopia, and Libya with them, all of them with shield and helmet. So joining Rosh, Meshach, and Tubal, the Russians, Moscow, and, and the Magogites of Scythia, would be Iran. And so when you see the aggression of Iran against America, it's no surprise that Soleimani was targeted. Now what's interesting is he's called the leader of the Quds Force. So we took a look at this idea of what is Quds, and Quds is actually named after Al-Quds, which is the Muslim name for Jerusalem. So Soleimani was leader of the Jerusalem Corps, whose avowed intent was to liberate Jerusalem from the Jews. And so God, through Trump, took this guy out. But just listen to some of the commentary that came up at the time, because we're going to think about this in terms of Bible prophecy. Yeah, this is a bold, decisive, and frankly long overdue move on the part of the United States to take down Soleimani. And just so everyone knows, he is directly responsible for the deaths of hundreds of American soldiers, thousands if not tens of thousands of people across the Middle East. He's the equivalent of Iran's head of CIA and special forces that runs all of their militias and proxies across Lebanon, Syria, and Iraq. Well, he was in Iraq and he was with the head of uh, Kataib Hezbollah, that just rocketed our base and killed an American and then staged this attack on our embassy, Soleimani was with him. Uh, the head of Kataib Hezbollah says he's a Soleimani soldier. So, you know, there's another piece to, to realize here is that the Israelis have said for years uh, in a number of reports that they have wanted to take action against him and the Obama administration declined it. So, understand then that this Soleimani guy, who is an Iranian, is the leader of Hezbollah. The, the head of the Hezbollah that was killed with him reported to him. He was a Soleimani soldier. Now the strategy of the Iranians is pointed out 
by uh, a general that was uh, had a lot to do with Iran back in the time of Ronald Reagan, and his name is Oliver North. Just listen to what he has to say. The bottom line is Soleimani was the purveyor of more terrorism than any other individual since Osama bin Laden. And Congressman Waltz is absolutely right. He's killed more Americans than anybody else since then. If we did indeed get Soleimani, we have reduced the number of terror attacks dramatically. Here's the bottom line. There are two governments in Baghdad. One is the pro-American government that's counting on us to continue to train and assist their military and help provide information that's very important to countering terrorism and protecting their country. The other one is the Iraqi government that is beholden to the Iraq, the Iranians. The Iranians have long wanted a free access going all the way from the Iraq-Iran border all the way into Syria and then, of course, the Bekaa Valley and attacking Israel. So that's their strategy, he says. They want to create a corridor from Iran through Iraq, through Syria, to basically be right there on top of Israel in the north. And this is actually just taking out of the Washington Times in January of this year. So this is other people basically recognizing this is what Iran is trying to do. Now, why that interests us is because the group of nations that are laid out for us in Ezekiel and Daniel and other prophecies includes that area of Syria, Iraq, Iran, all of them working together against Israel and being allied with Russia in the north. And so this is the event that is taking place. This is an escalation. I think it's proportional. I think he's right. But yep. to kill the top commander of the Quds Forces, the Islamic Revolutionary Guard Corps, this is the designated terrorist organization of the Iranian state. They're not just in Iraq and Syria and Afghanistan. They're with Hamas. They're with Hezbollah. They're surrounding Israel. This is the top anti-American, anti-Israel, anti-Western force in the world. This would be... So the top anti-Israel and anti-Western force in the world. Now, just take a look at what the Bible has to say in, in Ezekiel chapter 38 and verse 7. Be thou prepared, prepare for thyself, talking to Rosh, Meshach, and Tubal, Gog of the land of Magog. And he says, you know, to all thy company that are assembled unto thee, and be thou a guard unto them. So the phrase, be a guard unto them, implies the idea of the whole region, or these nations involved in it, being under Russian control, or as it's called in the media, Russian hegemony. So some translations actually have the idea of Russia being the commander and taking charge of them. And so when we see then things like this going on, this was in response to what happened in uh, the America's attack on Soleimani, the Russian Foreign Minister Sergei Lavrov had a television conversation with uh, Mike Pompeo, Pompeo of the United States, and Moscow urged Washington to give up illegal military actions to achieve, achieve its goals on, international, uh, on the international arena, which I thought was quite ironic after you consider Chechnya and the Ukraine and the Crimea and so on and so forth. It's a little bit the pot calling the saucepan black, but, um, but that's the idea. And take a look then at the other part that is forming during this time. We have in verse 13, another group of nations, Sheba, Dedan, the merchants of Tarshish and all the young lions thereof, who are protesting. And again, it's another class, and we looked at Sheba, or uh, uh, the merchants of Tarshish a little bit last week, with Britain and the Allies. You've got Australia, Canada, uh, the United States, um, and, and different nations like that that are, that are with it, 
along with Sheba and Dedan, which is the area of Saudi Arabia um, and the northern area of, um, of Saudi Arabia, um, Sheba being the southern area of Saudi Arabia. That's the, the geographical location back in the day. What we also find in Daniel 11 is the, the nations that when this northern host comes down and he overflows, he enters into the glorious land, many countries shall be overthrown, but some of them are going to escape out of his hand or be delivered, and that includes Edom, Moab, and the chief of the children of Ammon. Well, that area today is what we would call Jordan. In fact, the name Ammon, which is the capital of Jordan, comes from Ammon. And so this is the area, basically, that you're dealing with. So Jordan is also with them, and he's going to stretch forth his hand upon the countries, and Egypt shall not escape. Well, if Egypt's being attacked, then obviously Egypt is not in an alliance with the king of the north at the time of the end. It's part of, it's, it's part of his targeted area. So we have Jordan, Saudi Arabia, Egypt, all these nations right down into the southern, southern Gulf that are allied with um, the Tarshish Confederacy, and we have Iraq, Iran, and Syria that are allied with the Northern Confederacy. And when you look at this and you consider what's going on, I've got one last little clip I'd just like to play. Listen to how this um, uh, radio personality or TV personality, whatever he is, how he describes what has happened in the last year or so because of Iran and this attack. The great intelligence victory here is, and we've, we've got to remember that Hezbollah, one of the things Iran is best known for is they fund all these terror groups and fight proxy wars as they've been doing in Yemen and elsewhere around the world. We know the Iranians were responsible, Qud forces in particular, responsible for the killing of many Americans in Iraq during the latest conflict and the latest war there. And they have been sowing discord in the entire region. One of the outcrops of that that probably has created a moment in history that we may be able to look back on, um, Iran has single-handedly, the fear of Iranian hegemony has single-handedly created an alliance that might have been impossible just, you know, a few short years ago, and that is you have the Israelis, the Americans, the Jordanians, the Egyptians, and the Saudis all in unison against Iranian potential nuclear capability and their military aggression. And look, your years in Congress, you never would have imagined an alliance between America, the Israelis, the Egyptians, Jordanians, and Saudis. And the only reason that alliance, the intelligence sharing, the strategizing at a level that nobody ever thought possible is happening, is out of a real, clear, present danger that is posed by Iran and the possibility, of course, of their desire to acquire nuclear weapons, which, if that ever happens, uh, presents a great danger to the world. So the issue, then, that has come out of this is exactly like the picture of Ezekiel 38 and Daniel 11 depicts. America, Jordan, the Egyptians, the Saudis, and the Israelis have now formed an alliance. Now, it's a difficult alliance because to the Arab world, people don't necessarily want to know about it. Um, but they're forming and there's meetings going on all the times as they're aligning militarily to confront this Iranian threat. And so then January the 8th of this year, of course, the Iranians responded to the, the attack on Soleimani by attacking the U.S. bases. And um, a plane got shot down because they thought it was the Americans 
responding. Um, and of course, it was a Ukraine plane. Um, and uh, there were, I think, 57 uh, Canadians on board amongst the 176 passengers. Um, and this civilian plane was, was blown out of the sky by Iranian missiles that had been supplied by Russia. And of course, that kind of, in a way, put a pause in everything. Because now the Iranians, ready to beat their chest and maybe do a little bit more, kind of were held at bay um, because now uh, they were having trouble in their own country one again, once again because a lot of the people on that plane were Iranians. In fact, they're mostly all Iranians. Maybe they were some Canadian Iranians, but they were Iranians. And so when we, we take a look at all of that, we ask the question, well, where are we at? And what we're at is an, an accelerating situation. If you just think through what we have witnessed, you know, just we've just kind of run through this in the last few minutes. 1979, Iran moving away from Western hegemony. 1980s, Iran supporting Hezbollah and Lebanon in a civil war. We didn't really look at that, but that's what took place. 2011, the U.S. troops leave Iraq. 12, Iranian troops enter Iraq and Syria along with Russian troops fighting against ISIS um, and Iraq. Uh, basically joining with them, the ancient uh, part of the, the image as well, responding to or corresponding with Babylon. Um, 19, or 2018, America scraps the nuclear deal. Uh, and then in June of 19, or 2019, uh, Iran attacks oil tankers in the Persian Gulf. And then we have Israeli and Arab neighbors forging closer ties. The U.S. attacks Iranian Hezbollah bases at the very end of this last year. Uh, the Iran then responds by attacking the U.S. military, or, or sorry, embassy with, with a militia that's backed by Iranians. The U.S. assassinates Soleimani. Iran fires missiles at U.S. bases and then shoots down the Ukrainian passenger jet. But all of those events, what is taking place is, is kind of a global thing. You've got Iran, Iraq, Syria moving into the hands of Russia and forming an alliance together on one side. On the other, you've got Saudi Arabia, Egypt, Jordan, and Israel forming an alliance on the other side. And this is what we're seeing. We're seeing the image come together because we read that thou sawest this whole image come together and thou sawest till a stone was cut without hands, which smote the image upon the feet that were of iron, of clay, and break them to pieces. Then the iron, the clay, the brass, the silver, and the gold were broken in pieces together. And that's the key, that those elements are all together. And that's what we've seen. Iran and Iraq during the 1980s had an eight-year war. They were not by any stretch together. Iran before 1979 was with America, not together with this whole group. Iraq after the 1990s was against America. But then America overtook it and kind of semi-ruled it for a little bit of time. But now they've lost their, their foothold there and the, the uh, Iraqis have asked them to leave or that the legislative assembly has. And Iranians are moving into the area of Iraq and into Syria and Russia's there as well. We see the, the metals of the image all coming together just as the picture of Ezekiel chapter 38, Daniel 11 and Daniel 2 has pointed out. And when that happens... It's then that the stone smites the image. When those, those metals are broken in pieces together, and that stone, of course, is the kingdom of God, um, led by the Lord Jesus Christ, 
and it will become a great mountain that fills the entire earth. So the kingdom will begin in Israel, and it's going to grow from there to become a great empire that's going to fill the entire earth. So we can take comfort, even though the world gets excited by these things going on, what's happening here, we can take comfort in the fact that the scriptures are in fact coming true. We looked at this on uh, Thursday night last week as well, Brother Dave mentioned that the, the Olivet Prophecy is, is about AD 70, but there are pieces of it that kind of have that application to today. We live in the time when Jerusalem has been trodden down by the Gentiles, but the times of the Gentiles are now fulfilled since 1967. And there's going to be signs in the sun and the moon and the stars and on the earth, distress of nations with perplexity the sea and the waves warring. That was certainly the way it was back in AD 70. Men's hearts failing them for fear, for looking after those things which are coming on the earth. The powers of heaven shall be shaken. And then shall they see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and great glory. Now that happened in AD 70 when the Lord sent the empire of Rome against Israel to bring his judgments. But it's also applicable today. That when we, we live in a time when the times of the Gentiles is fulfilled and we soon will see the Lord Jesus Christ coming and we hope to be part of those clouds, those great clouds of witnesses of, of Hebrews chapter 12, when of course he's going to come and rule the world in righteousness. But he tells us in Luke, when you begin to see these things coming to pass, look up and lift up your heads for your redemption draweth nigh. So as we watch Iran, as we watch the world events going on in, in Israel, as we've seen events in Britain and, and across Europe, with America, with Iraq and all these different nations, we know the hand of God is closing the pages on the times of, of the Gentiles and the coming of his son is very much at the door. And the exhortation to us is to look up and lift up our heads for our redemption draws nigh and prepare ourselves for the Lord's return. Thank you.